Welcome to Rust Belt Abolition Radio. My name is A. Maria. In this episode, co-producer Alejo Stark speaks with Charlie Bright about the rearticulations of carceral narratives, from the era of Fordism through discourses on modernization and the desperate rehabilitation of the rehabilitative model. Bright discusses how a century's worth of constant renegotiations of the coherence of departments of correction has informed and been informed by struggles within prisons and the populations they seek to control, and some of the reasons why industrial penology was overcome by riots and may be turning to technologies of incarceration. So my name is Alejo, and you're listening to Rust Belt Abolition Radio, an abolitionist media and movement building project based in Detroit, Michigan. Today we speak with Charlie Bright. He's a professor emeritus of history and the residential college at the University of Michigan, and is also the author of The Powers That Punish, an extraordinary history of Jackson Prison in the state of Michigan, which traces the emergence of the largest penitentiary in the world in the early 20th century up until the historic 1952 riot that shook the walls and cages of this model prison of industrial penology. So welcome, Charlie, and thank you for joining us. Nice to be here. So I wanted to start sort of by denaturalizing the sheer scale of the carceral state today, not just in Michigan, but in the United States as a whole. As you know, there are dozens of state prisons and jails that dot the vast territories of the state of Michigan. But this vast carceral geography, as it were, did not exist in the first few decades of the 20th century. So can you sort of contextualize for us uh, the scale and some main differences in, state, in the state's prisons in the first decades of the 20th century? Well, in the 60s, there were some sociological studies that said that no matter what happens with crime rates, they rise, they fall, the proportion of American population incarcerated remained the same. And they produced these graphs that showed a kind of level threshold of incarceration nationally as well as in the state of Michigan. And that held until the 1970s when it went through the roof. The incarceration rates began to balloon. But in up until the 70s and through much of the 20th century, there was rises and falls in crime and crime waves and that sort of thing. But the the proportion of the of Michigan people who were incarcerated remained pretty much the same. And it was falling. In the 1940s, the Jackson prison had close to 5,200 inmates. By the mid-1960s, it was down to 2,500. And their parole rates in the 50s and early 60s were quite high. And the population of the state prison system as a whole was in decline, not in not going up. And that was reversed probably starting in 1975, 76. And then it's like an arrow through the roof. Yeah, so even... But even the racial composition, too, right, of the early 20th century of, of Michigan as a state and, of course, of Michigan prisons was actually quite different. We were also talking about a state that had just a few handful of prisons, right? Jackson was only one of how many prisons? Two or three? There were three major penitentiaries, Jackson, and one at Ione and one in Marquette. And Marquette was the one for serious threats and, and dangerous criminals and that sort of thing and had the isolation zones and so forth. Jackson was the big holding prison. And I, the one in Ionia was for younger prisoners and tended to send people there that they thought could be rehabilitated by a five-year term in prison or something like that. But those three, then there were some road camps that were associated in the 1920s with road building and bridge building in the state. And the camps moved around. They weren't always in the same place. And these housed prisoners that they thought were, well, not threats to escape. So can you tell us a little bit more about Jackson specifically, which 
and will become the largest penitentiary in the world in the 1920s, housing or having the capacity to house almost 5,000 prisoners. It was the site also of the first state penitentiary in Michigan, right? So can you sort of tell us a little bit more about how this penitentiary emerges and what is at stake in a way? I mean, it's a complicated story as you as you tell in the book, but what is it about Jackson and it's also a function of around prison labor, right? That, that's significantly changed in the past 100 years. Well, in the book, I had this problem of trying to understand why when they built additional prison capacity in the 1920s, they put it all in a single complex in what is now Jackson. Jackson was already the site of the major state penitentiary, had been since the 1840s, really, and had gone through several iterations in the late 19th century, uh, expansion, uh, new walls were built, there was this sort of thing. But in the 1920s, people were expecting a bulge in incarceration rates because of prohibition. And everybody expected a crime wave to follow prohibition, and it did. And the number of people being incarcerated grew as a result of that. And the capacity of the three state uh, prisons at that time was simply not enough to hold the rising numbers. And so they decided to build more capacity. What was interesting was that they didn't build several prisons scattered across the state to absorb this. They built one single large prison that would hold 5,200 or 300 inmates. And this was started in 1924 by the warden of the then Jackson prison because he was convinced that prisons could be self-supporting if they were industrial. That is, if they had factories that manufactured articles for sale in in the free market furniture, binder twine, whatever, cotton goods, and so forth. So he set out to build a prison at Jackson, not at the old site, but down the road on Cooper Street, that would be big enough to house an industrial complex. And for that, he would have a lot of prisoners who would work the industrial complex. River Rouge plant of Henry Ford has just been opened, and the model is there. You know, concentrate production, concentrate the means of production, concentrate the labor force, and you have mass production. And... He, was, he, he persuaded the then mayor, uh, Governor Grosbeck, that it would be feasible for the, uh, the prison to take this on. And so he started building a new prison using prison labor. And the prison took until 1934 to complete. So the, the biggest prison, the big Jackson facility, wasn't available until after the Depression knocked out industrial production. <laughs> but, but that's another story. So in the 20s, he was adding plant and equipment to the old plant, the old buildings, and and running them 24 hours a day in some cases, making things for sale in the free market. At the same time, he's using prison labor to build the new prison down the road. And that got complicated. And part of it was the build a big prison was how industrial thinking was at the time. The other part of it was that the way a prison was built in the 1920s was it was under the supervision of the warden of the prison, who doled out the contracts and made the the deals with suppliers of lumber, of brick, brick masons, electricians, plumbers, and all of that sort of thing, plus the capacity of prisoners to lug things and carry things. So to do that, he was doling out all kinds of favors to people in Jackson County and people he knew down the road in contiguous counties for contracts on the job. And the more he doled out the contracts, the bigger the, the project got because he, he could see ways of expanding. So the wall kept getting extended in the 20s. It started with one design and then the drawings were thrown away and another wall addition was made and and extra buildings were added to it. And all of this was to be justified by the industrial capacity of the thing when it was finished to produce a profit. The old prison with certain industrial capabilities did make a profit, I think, in 1925 and 26, just, just barely. 
But the warden was running up huge debts, too, so that the prophets were, there was a lot of finagling of the books. And, you know, he was convincing the governor over and over again, this is going to work. But by the time the prison was finished, or even before it was finished in the early 30s, the Depression knocked out the market for industrial-made products. Not only that, but it also enhanced the power of unions to prevent the sale of prison-made goods in the free market. And there were legislation, 35 and 37, both state and federal, that forbade the prison from selling prison-made goods in the open market. So just as the prison was open, the industrial model fell fell apart. And that produced a whole other story about this prison. So we'll get to that story in a second. But what you're describing is what you sort of call in the book industrial penology, right? This sort of idea that you can in a way, make a profit and have the prison itself become self-sustaining, right? And you mentioned also in the book that by the mid-1920s, the warden at Jackson boasted that 75% or something like that of its own imprisoned population, that basically 5,000 prisoners or so, were employed, right? That number is unthinkable today. I mean, most prisoners today do not work. And so we're looking at a very different model of punishment and of how prisons are run and what the justification for punishment is, what the specific practices of punishment are as well. And so can you talk a little bit about this very brief stint of industrial penology? It's sort of the other side of the coin, as it were, of, of Fordism, right, as you mentioned. And to what extent was it pragmatic, you know, because Jackson is one of other so-called big houses in, in the United States at the time. Is that right? To understand prisons and the changes that go on in prison, you don't think of it in terms of reform efforts and failure, but rather the cobbling together of a coherent narrative about incarceration, that those who run prisons have to speak to multiple audiences. They have to speak to the public, that they're doing some good and they're bringing prisoners who have been criminals back into society as reformed individuals or, or, or groups. That you speak to politicians about what we're doing in prison is worth the money you're spending. Speak to the staff and the guards in the prison about what they're doing and how what they're doing is, is, is in sync with what the government wants and what the public wants and is a good public service. But it also has to speak to prisoners and give prisoners a, 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 a kind of standard way of thinking of their, the terms of their incarceration, and particularly how they can get out. What are the terms of release? What are the terms of parole? What do I have to do to convince you that I'm, if, if not really reformed, appear to be reformed, right? Mm -hmm. So that carceral narrative has to be a coherent one that speaks to these multiple audiences at once, and it's constantly being renegotiated. That is, changes in the society, changes in the prison, changes in, in politics, all of this is constantly forcing people to re-articulate the, the coherence of the narrative of what incarceration is doing, to whom, what makes them misbehave, and what we're doing to correct them. And what Hulbert did, in the warden in, in the 20s, was to put together a narrative that said that, that criminals are basically lazy. They don't want to work. What prison does is put them to work in industrial jobs, which is exactly what they'll do when they get out of the prison. They'll go to work for Henry Ford in an industrial job. And I can turn around to the politicians and say, an industrial prison that teaches prisoners not to be lazy but to be you know, productive citizens by holding down a job is also going to make a profit for the state so the state doesn't have to worry about the expenses of, the, of, of an industrial prison and speaks to a larger audience of the public that what we're doing is actually contributing to the overall prosperity of the United States and its economy. But it also speaks to prisoners. If you go to work and you work hard and you get a good work record, you go before the parole board, they will deduct you know, time for the, for the good work record. So prisoners knew how they could get out 
That narrative then spoke to all of these audiences in a kind of coherent way that when it was cobbled together in the 1920s made sense. The problem was when in the 30s the industrial core fell out of that model, the, uh, it was harder for prisoners to see how to get out because there was no jobs to go to work for. It was harder for the state to see that this industrial prison was worth the, the money, right? It was harder for guards to see how they could you know, run a prison without the jobs and the promise of jobs that was the way they negotiate with prisoners about if you cooperate with me, I'll make sure you get a good posting in this factory rather than the other one. You don't have to do laundry. You can do, you know, binder twine or whatever. So that narrative had to be coherent, and it was in the 20s, and it fell apart in the, in the 30s, just as the new industrial prison was open. Of course, that narrative today, in a way, is still around the, the way in which the Michigan Department of Corrections still speaks, or well, there's been a sort of rehabilitation of the rehabilitative element of prison. But of course, there's, there's no jobs you know, after you come out, and you know, 2% of the imprisoned population is actually working today. Right. The rehabilitation rhetoric of the Department of Corrections is a return to the rehabilitation record. They set it aside in the mid-70s. And in the 80s, if you'd asked anybody in the Department of Corrections what corrections for is for containment and for you know, warehousing. And part of the problem with that mass incarceration as a warehouse project is it does not speak to prisoners about the terms on which they can get along and get out. And it doesn't give guards and custodians the resources to concede something to prisoners if they in turn will help them run the institution peacefully. The only thing they can do is put them in, in solitary. Prison in the 20s was an industrial model, which fell apart in the 30s. And then again in the 40s, in early, late 40s and 50s, they put together a narrative again around uh, therapy and, 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 and individualized treatment and education along with work. And so they mixed work in with other things that you could do or had to do because there were only about 500 jobs in the place, but they could have counseling sessions and, and, and therapy sessions and educational classes and so forth. And many more prisoners in the 50s at Jackson were doing that kind of thing than working in industrial plants. But the narrative was stitched back together because you could say to prisoners after the riot of 52, you could say to prisoners, if you get with the program, do your individual counseling, go to classes, and work in the job we give you, which is a menial job and not very meaningful, and get your mind right, you'll get a parole. And that again spoke to prisoners in a language that was modern and, and spoke in public about therapy and, and scientific measures and methods of correction and so forth, told politicians, we know what we're doing and we're doing it in a way that returns prisoners as adjusted citizens, maybe not working very hard, but at least pretending to be conformist, and spoke to guards about how if, if, if your prisoners cooperate with you and keep the peace of the institution, we will give you a good recommendation to, for the parole board when you go to the parole board to get released. And prisoners knew then how to get out and also how to get along inside with the custodians. The thing, that, to my mind, that was, was, was coherent about this was that the 20s and the 50s both had narratives of incarceration that were coherent enough to speak to multiple audiences, and they all had the theme of reformation and re-inclusion. They did it by different means, hard work, go to factories, therapy, adjustment, you know, become a, a conforming citizen. There were different, different means to do it. But the, the principle of, of both of those, and therefore of the first half of the 20th century, was that the prison was in the business of reformation and of correction. And the problem from the 70s on was that that promise of re-inclusion was taken away. 
We're not in the business of rehabilitation, they said. We're just in the business of holding them, throw away the key. And when you can't offer the narrative about re-inclusion, you can't negotiate the cooperation of prisoners to keep the peace of the institution. So then you're always on edge, watching for the least sign of resistance because you don't have no incentives. In between, of course, you have the 1952 riot, which rocked the Jackson State Prison and in a way also was a, perhaps the last nail in the coffin of this sort of industrial technology model you know, that you're describing. And so kind of, can you tell us what happened in the 52 riot? There's also a broader context of other major prison state riots in Trenton, in New Jersey, for instance, right, of other sort of quote-unquote big house industrial technology type prisons. Can you reconstruct for us this sort of conjunctural and structural context, which gave rise to these flashpoints of, of the prison resistance movement? Well, <clears throat> the, the first thing about riots in prison is that they're often explained in terms of if, if the custodians are not on the ball, they're going to be a, a rebellion or a riot because prisoners are just out of control most of the time and will be out of control if they're not under control. The problem with that argument that the prisons are these sort of ticking time bombs that'll explode the moment a custodian looks the other way and doesn't pay attention to what the signals are is that in 1951-52, there were riots in dozens of American prisons. And to explain those as serendipitous explosions in separate places is sort of strains credulity. I mean, it's hard to, hard to believe. So I spent a lot of time trying to think about what it was that made for a riot in these multiple settings by looking at what happened at Jackson. And what happened in Jackson is a complicated story, and I can't repeat it all, but in 1945-46, there was a big scandal uh, surrounding the warden and the deputy warden then, Harry Jackson and his deputy Pettit, for essentially letting inmates run the joint. Without industrial jobs, they essentially conceded anything to the prisoners to you know, gambling and money laundering and, 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 and trading in chickens and, you know, contraband of all kinds. And the deal was, you keep the lid on, don't let anybody know that you're being let out of the prison to go to Detroit Tigers games on the weekend and that sort of thing, and, and we'll let you run the place. And that story broke in 40, 45, 46, and it opened the door in Michigan to the introduction of this new reform penology that was being talked about from the late 30s and under the New Deal and all about how prisons should be not just about hard work, they should also be about um, rehabilitation, therapy, counseling, you know, the individual treatment model was the, was the language of the time. And this was talked about in prisoner management circles, really from the late 30s, certainly from the, after the Second World War, 45 on, as the way to go in the future. And that people who ran prisons through industry, which didn't exist anymore, or through, you know, beatings and, and, and brutality were backward. And this was the progressive way to go about doing things. The problem with that introduction of new techniques for managing a prison and new promises for release and so forth is that the first thing it does is destroy the hierarchies that have been built around the industrial model uh, and the corruption of that industrial model in the 30s. That is, the, the hierarchies of prisoner big shots who then control other runners in the, in the, in the building who have deals with the guards for this kind of, uh, you know, privilege or that kind of privilege. There was an aristocrat's row in, in, in Jackson in the forties where the big shots 
who had all the control over the the subgroups and, and, and networks met and, and, and planned out how they would share the turf and, and, and the profits and so forth, and guards were on the take and all of that. Once you destroy that, say we're going to treat everybody the same, and we're going to go into a new model of individualized treatment for everybody on their own terms and counseling and advising and education and all that, you destroy the old hierarchies. As you don't introduce the new model fully, Prisoners don't know what to expect or how to, the stability of the, the internal world of the prison is disturbed and they don't see a, a way to stabilize their lives inside. What is it I have to do to get out of here? What is it I have to do to appeal to the parole board? What is it I have to do to get a better cell assignment? What does I have to do to get a better job assignment? I don't know the rules anymore because the rules that had been in the industrial model and it had been you know, swept aside, hadn't been replaced by something new. So my argument was that this was happening all over the country, this introduction of this new penology, but it was an incomplete introduction. I'm curious to, to hear also more about what you, how you think about in relation to the broader context. So you mentioned there was multiple uh, riots in other you know, states, dozens of cities. And so the claim is that there is maybe this passage from one penology model to another that is incomplete and therefore it's a moment of, of, of you know, lack of clarity as it were is, is your claim. There are also other more conjunctural specific local conditions in this massive state penitentiary as well right where 5,000 people are housed and a lot of the main demands that we hear even today in the prison resistance movement can be you know found also in these prisons you know overcrowding and the specificity also of cell block 7. So can you tell us a little bit more about the specific conjunctural uh, you know, sort of local conditions? The outbreak of the riot has all the makings of a, of a serendipitous event. This young rookie guard was persuaded by a wily con to open the cell, his cell so he could take something to a cell down the, down the block. And as soon as the door was open, he overpowered the guard, put the guard in the cell, and then released 180 or 90 prisoners from that cell block who took over the whole building. And, you know, this, it's serendipitous in the sense, right? So in that sense, it, it says that a riot could happen any time. A guard is not paying attention. And it was that kind of notion of the explosion, uh, you know, time bomb that I wanted to kind of contest because there had to be other reasons. Now, once the prisoners, well, they took over the disciplinary block. And then the next morning, the warden tried to pretend that everything was normal and let half the prison out for breakfast. And they went back to their cells after breakfast. And they let the other half of the, uh, the population out for breakfast. And somebody said something about salt in the coffee is poison. So then there was a lot of food being thrown. And the prisoners rushed into the yard and took over half the prison in the main yard. And as so often happens in riots and, and disturbances in prison, the first thing people do is barbecue. And there was a big bar- kitchen was raided. And they brought out all the meat and they put it on fires and were eating. And, you know, scores were being settled. A lot of things were happening. Once the prisoners had control of a good proportion, the guards pulled back. And then there was this negotiation between the director of individualized treatment, Vernon Fox, and the head prisoner who was kind of getting some control over the people inside the cell block for negotiation. And out of that came demands. And the demands are the kind of demands that would exist in any prison at any time. Brutality of guards, bad food, poor medical condition, lack of entertainment and, and recreation. You know, the, the list was, what was interesting to me was that on that list was these things about clarifying rules, 
clarifying parole procedures, giving us some hint of what we have to be doing, what is expected of us, that kind of, those kind of demands were included in this list of, you know, bad food, bad treatment, so on. So what do you make of a list of demands that would be in any prison at any time in the midst of a riot that could have started anytime, anywhere by the negligence of a guard? How do you explain this happening in multiple places in the same two years? And what I fell back on was that there was a kind of historic change in the reformulation of the carceral narrative. And the project of doing that was disturbing the existing hierarchies among inmates and the existing deals between guards and inmates inside for running institutions. It was Those were being disturbed and something was not being put in its place to replace them so that prisoners knew what to expect and guards knew what they could trade and so forth. And that that was what made these riots happen all, all at that time because it was happening all over the country, this new penology was coming into existence. Talking about the situation today, this sort of rehabilitation, as it were, of the rehabilitative model, right, from sort of pre-industrial penology to warehousing prisoners in the 1970s to, once again, talking about rehabilitation. One difference that maybe we can note uh, is that there is you know, not only a much larger prison population today, significantly larger. Prisoners are also not going to be let out into the so-called industrial jobs that you know, have not existed and do not currently exist. And so even as there is this rehabilitation of the rehabilitative model in, for instance, the Michigan Department of Corrections and many other departments of corrections in the United States, not only are there no jobs inside, but there's no jobs on the outside, right? And so there's always this task to measure the discursive apparatus that's you know being put out by the spokespersons of the Department of Corrections and the actual sort of practices uh, inside. And so you know, how do you understand that gap? Well, it's hard to know. I mean, what comes to my mind initially is I don't think they know what they're talking about. They're, they're scrambling for a language that will replace the language of throw away the key and, and containment because that's too expensive and too dangerous. And they, their only solution ultimately is is to separate each prisoner into its own little box and, and, and like chronically seal them to keep them in, under control because there's no promises being made. There's no deal to you know get along. Why? There's no reason to. And if you got the life without parole, there's no reason to cooperate. I mean, there's no correspondence between the keeper and the kept. That doesn't work. So now what do we talk about? Well, we talk about trying to put in some opportunities for education or for reading or for writing, possibilities of maybe some preparation for going out into the real world, but not jobs, because the jobs that they have in the prison are not jobs that, well, they're not jobs that they're going to find on the outside. So the recourse to this rehabilitation language is a recourse out of failure of the other model and an attempt to find language that will resonate with the public that is impatient, with politicians that are tired of spending this kind of money, with prison unions now, guard unions, which are very powerful in any state, which don't want to cut back on the size of the prison population because it cuts back on their jobs, and prisoners who have not been engaged in a correspondence with the keepers for years. And I don't think it's going to work. I mean, I think, you know, if they read the history, they'd know that the rehabilitation has always been talked about since the first prison was built in Pennsylvania, you know. But whether they'll ever find a way of, of making that resonate as a coherent narrative, I you know, I don't see it yet. There may be some breakthrough in tethering technology that they'll capture, you know, that will allow them to let a lot of 
less serious criminals and offenders out. But the result of mass incarceration is not just on the inside, but on the outside. The disruption of communities, of families, of, of generational sequencing uh, in cities like Detroit. The, the building of these prisons in these little towns all over Michigan where it's the only source of jobs. This is not an easy thing to un- unpack. Yeah, I mean, certainly there's a push towards getting more people out, as you said, on, on tethers. Even in the state of Michigan, people are being charged, you know, 17, 15 bucks a day. Yeah. We don't think that's an alternative to incarceration. That's also an alternative form of incarceration, right? Uh, and then sort of passing the cost on to loved ones and, and those who are, are, are being punished. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. You can listen to past episodes or read their transcripts on our website at www.rustbeltradio.org. This show was co-produced by the Rust Belt Abolition Radio Crew, A. Maria, Cape Syed, and Alejo Stark. Original music by Bad Infinity. 